Welcome to Podcast This Escape, the podcast in which we talk about the escape room that we escaped from in the previous episode of this podcast. We have just finished uh, episode two of Chronomaly uh, with some fantastic guests. Congratulations, guys. You got out. Good work. We did it. I, I, we were worried we weren't going to. Yeah, we got lost in that maze <laughs> for a while. Yeah. yeah. More to the point, you got in and then got out again. That's yeah. true. You had to do both. <laughs> Uh, you guys did really, really well with that. That was a lot of fun. How, did you? Do you enjoy it? Did you? Was oh, it that was a blast. Room? I was. I wanted to keep solving more stuff. Yeah, me too. That was fun. <laughs> oh, uh, there were some things that both you did that were like really good, really smart. There was one moment uh, with that. Uh, I think the thing that stuck us for the longest was trying to come up with a solution for that Mercury River. That is true. Yeah, it was. It, I think it was. We solved it right the first time. So going down the path uh, was challenging, and I've seen that in real rooms mm. where. There is something very, very similar where uh, there is a puzzle that I had done where I had solved it correctly. It was a maze where you have to navigate a piece through and solving it turned on a light. And I didn't go back to try to solve it a different way because that was what I got stuck on. So the idea is like mm. I, we didn't think to go back, but clearly we exhausted everything else. So going back for the rope did make sense because you also drop very particular hints. And so saying that his favorite animal is a horse was something that we picked up on, just did, we didn't do anything with. Mm. Yeah, I, I did notice that right before. I think when you guys suggested to go days of the week, which is end up being like the sort of quote correct. unquote correct uh, solution, like seconds before, one of you said, "Oh, we can go down the like we can go down all the horse passages because it's his favorite animal." And then, but the, the days of the sort week, of said, took oh precedence. no, wait, days of the week, and you immediately like fixed that solution for the correct one, but it was also a separate solution. No, yeah, uh, no, it makes sense having uh, different choices, and then I think having uh, the bone arrow like should have easily grabbed it off the ground. They were just so excited to watch it fall mm -hmm. to the ground that completely forgot mm -hmm. to even pick it up. And before we started recording, or no, sorry, before we started playing, while we were recording, yeah. we were talking about shooting everything with a bow and arrow. Yes, <laughs> and, true. The, and that's the thing is, I, I actually had traumatized the poor group so much that I had stopped, uh, I, I changed alignment <laughs> during a near-death experience. I was like, I'm going to oh. change from chaotic to, yeah, to not chaotic. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I think I've traumatized people too much because I am I shooting so many things in D and D uh, when you're not supposed to uh, it causes problems. <laughs> that is true. Um, <sighs> but no, you guys, you guys do really well. I, I'm glad that both of you got to go at the uh, the symbol describing. <laughs> I'm gonna, not sure. I keep, I'm I keep glad trying to call it kanji, but that's the Japanese name, not the Chinese one. Um, but yeah, no, you did great. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, I I don't know that I think uh, Patrick did a great job describing. I don't <laughs> I don't know if my ability to describe symbols. Uh, yeah, looking at my my attempt to break down the layout was not the best. You definitely got the harder one. Yeah, I was gonna say it was two. way harder. Yeah, but no, <laughs> I, yeah, no, it, that that was fun though. I like that challenge though. Uh, it, it's interesting to try to describe uh, symbols, especially when they're laid out differently. Mm. And uh, for anyone looking on at home who knows a bit more about how to draw these symbols than I do, uh, they won't be particularly great drawings, I'm sure, of what mm. the symbols are supposed to look like. I know you've got things like exactly which strokes you're supposed to do and in what order, and you can tell when looking at it whether you've done them right or wrong. I have in no way done that. So <laughs> it's about as accurate as anything else in my historically themed rooms. Yeah, and this I'm sure our, a, our copy of a copy, our translations, I'm sure. Uh, okay, mine feels yeah. very accurate. So I, I don't know. Uh, it was a little hard to playtest this one, mm. um, both because like when Danny was giving clues for it, she already sort of knew what they looked like and and and, and had a bit more. Because yeah, Bill's the only one who playtests, so um, he was on his own. And also, I I 
know at least I'd forgotten most of it, but I uh, I used to know a lot more Japanese uh, kanji, which are all just Chinese symbols. So when I start to get like the vague shape of something, I can just be like, oh, that'll be this thing and just sort of finish it off. Yeah, you're uh, like human autocomplete for uh, for kanji. Yeah. yeah, so so, that, so it was hard to see. I wonder how difficult this will be, but I think it worked out quite well. <laughs> Especially actually looking at uh, the ones that uh, that you did, uh, at least we saw um, Tommy's, it looked oh. really good. Here, I, I, I will on. show you uh, Patrick's. Oh, please. Oh, lovely. Um, Let's see. Oh, wonderful. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. I see all of the the squares on squares on squares trying to get the shapes correct. Stacks on stacks on stacks of wrong answers. But I quite I really like that when what that's not something you've done before, Danny, in your design. Or not that I remember a puzzle like that. Was there a distinct inspiration for that as a mechanism? That's an awfully good question. I think there was just some part of me that went, man, you know what's hard? Drawing symbols when you have no idea what they mean and can't even like think about how you would tell another person what they were. So it probably was just, I need a puzzle. What's another type of puzzle? Maybe a talking puzzle. No, you're, I mean, the, the framework for describing things you don't know context-wise, like if you were having us do letters or shapes or things we knew would be much easier, but I like the idea of unfamiliar shapes, especially looking at like uh, Japanese and Chinese characters. The idea is that, yeah, the the lines, diagonal, uh, in relation to each other are different from what we do. And so, yeah, I think it's really mm. foreign and I like that challenge of drawing something you're is, not culturally familiar with. It is just kind of a harder variation on things that we've definitely done and definitely seen before. Like in our Christmas episode, we've got a game of taboo. That is true, I suppose. We do have that. We've I definitely do. had to do in at least one real uh, escape room, charades. That is true. I, I was thinking of that actually mm. when we first did it, yeah. um, of, of a room that we did, which you'll have both done in yes. LA, that requires mm-hmm. you to do uh, charades uh, without sound. Like it's which had a similar feeling to it. I also do apologize uh, to, I know we have listeners who can uh, speak and write uh, Mandarin. Mm. So sorry, that was a boring puzzle for you. <laughs> I apologize. For anybody it's... very familiar with Chinese or Japanese characters, Oh, yeah, I super apologize for, one, that possibly not being a difficult puzzle, two, for me not doing it particularly accurately, and three, every chance likelihood that it is time drastically inaccurate because obviously the symbols change over time. And even just on the Wikipedia page for this dude's name, there are like five different ways of writing the characters for it, depending on what age of symbol you're using. Yeah, this is probably like simplified modern Chinese as opposed to classical Chinese. The Either fanciest way. one was all curves, and there was no mm. way that was going to be described. <laughs> it's interesting, but I like the idea of of one of the things I really talk about with design that I find fascinating is things you can't do in other forms of entertainment. And since this is not a typical escape room, you, it's, you couldn't get away with doing that necessarily yeah. uh, mm-hmm. in a real room. So I like the fact that this is a challenge you would see only in a game like this. I don't know if there's much in this particular room that you could get away with in a real room. <laughs> right. And that's the thing is like when people design for particular mediums. I mean, I took my clothes off, so. That's true. I don't know if that's loud in the other rooms. And we also dangled over a, you know, a thing of mercury. And But the idea of like having a, an endless sort of tunnel, you could not do that in a real world setting. So that's I true. like the idea of leaning into things that you can't do in real world settings in this that are, again, you know, it's fantasy role playing. It's exciting. And I think that's really been the biggest changed kind of since the very beginning when we did this podcast because right at the start I was trying to make them as mm. real so deliberate as emulations of real room with only little suspension of disbelief bits on the way 
But yeah, now I very much leaned into it. We've had enough people say that they feel like playing a real room that we understand that, okay, cool. Now let's try and make them feel different. (laughs) No, it's great. I think there's some knowledge of the more you get into it. And I think you look at any new medium, like anything, even like VR, when it was first developed, people were just translating regular 2D games into virtual reality. And it it didn't necessarily stick. But once you get the framework of thinking in that space and that type of design, you get better at it. Which, again, like Mm. your games, even from the very first one, I always thought they were fun. But you're right. They felt more like, okay, you're just describing a game I could be playing in real life. But Mm. in these ones, I mean, I would love to play this in real life. But (laughs) I would love it if (laughs) the Chinese government would spend lots of money to make this. But in reality, yeah, you're getting to sort of live out these weird fantasies that, you know, wouldn't happen or you wouldn't play in a typical game. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, there were a few things. So I recently, uh, I did the play, I did some play testing for this. Uh, and for people who have uh, access to our Patreon, you can hear, well, generally Whoa. you can hear those play tests. This one, we had technical difficulties. I think you can hear the first 40 minutes of the play test. <laughs> so we'll put up something else as a reward as well, but you can at least hear the start of it. Uh, but there were a few things that were different. Um, but especially right mm. at the very beginning, uh, that archer puzzle was, was completely different when we first, uh, ran the room. Yeah, it was both simplified and I don't know, less, in, if, less certain. It was a much less certain part. There was only, you just needed to rotate the one water statue. Oh, and interesting. What was the logic of just doing all, one versus the others? Yeah, it was just because that was his symbol and it was his tune, yeah, therefore was, go with that. But I, then changing it when I'm just going, like Billy decided, said something about maybe making them face, making the arrows point towards each other. And then I sort of went, well, actually, based on this whole cyclic nature of them thing, yeah, that makes mm. way more sense. But yeah, because it was so the it was uh, yeah the puzzle itself was just identifying which color went to which uh, element mm. by finding the map, mm-hmm. and then making the the decision that water would be correct because it's his tomb and that's his sign. Uh, and the and then the question was finding which one was water using the map. But uh, yeah, I don't know if you would like to me that felt too that had some reasoning to it, but not enough to be certain. And especially when the trap was introduced with the concept of doing this wrong equals being shot by an arrow and dying. I really like, it felt like you needed that certainty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would suppose the only way to know which one was certain is if only the water one moved and the other ones did not. But yeah, I like yeah, the idea that since all of them moved, it, it made that puzzle made sense. I think the way you edited it. Mm. And I think it still felt like uh thematically, it was still, it was still completely thematically appropriate. Mm. Still fit the, and I, even possibly more so because they all had bows, so they were all shooting at each other. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Yeah, if they're the representations uh, of their elements and they're fighting each other, it's, yeah, I like exactly. that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, as soon as we've done the playtest, it's remarkable how necessary they are and just the immediate leap in quality. Mm. But I suppose that's done. always the, that's often a thing, right? The, the part of the role of playtesting is to get all of the logical jumps that make perfect sense to one person to at least test those, mm. even for us, just a little bit to make sure that they. Yeah exist outside of just and one person's understanding. clearly it did with this new puzzle because once you guys had all of the elements to it, you were right there with it. And yet it didn't feel like a too easy gimme. It felt like you had worked something out and you had worked it out well. Yeah. We yeah, there were, there were two layers. I think the thing is, yeah, the two layers made it, I think, more of a puzzle. And I, yeah, the identifying if you just figure out what water was would have been, I think, too simple. And like yeah. you, Billy, like you said, the and, idea of being uncertain of, oh, it's just water versus... Yeah. And I think it made sense too, because when you said water was, that was the statue that goes underground, right? Or the lowers is the water one? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that, I thought that made sense as acknowledging his favorite one. Hmm. And I think that almost sets it up well that things in this tomb will relate to his 
personal information, which right. sets up horse being an answer because it's his favorite animal. And all no, that was a totally that. valid thing too. Yeah, I, I like. I, yeah, I think it sets it up well because. But without going down the wrong path, we never would have made a really good friend. That's true. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes you gotta go down the path less traveled. Yeah. And that's what I, that's I love true. too if, is that you, you lean just... you lean into people's uh, willingness to play around too. Uh, I'm glad that Rock became such a powerful friend. I hadn't <laughs> thought of it like that, but yeah, if you had picked up the bow from the start and found the rope early on, you might have just treated that rock like a rock. Yeah. Exactly. And how sad the fandom would be. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for uh, art for the uh, the rock to pour in. Well, yeah, now, meanwhile, so uh, whenever we get a $10 Patreon donor, we send them a card and some badges, and I always draw a little illustration, usually of an animal that has appeared in one of our previous rooms. So whoever our next $10 donor is is getting a rock. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I feel oh, bad I for that. them. But he's a cool rock. Okay, I'm pretty yeah. sure I gave someone bread. That's, <laughs> That's, bread I, That's terrible. You could draw either like fearsome skeleton bread. animals or rock. Yep. I know uh, which one people want. So was there anything, <laughs> while you were playing through, was there anything that made you feel especially... Smart. Smart or, or maybe dumb? Uh, the, the describing. I realized I was terrible at trying to... Because it's funny. I mean, I think people <laughs> say that when you're back, you know, backseat playing, you're just like, come on, do the thing, you know. But when you're actually in it, I think it's really easy to get excited in the moment and to completely forget mm. to pick up a bow. So uh, not picking up the thing that <laughs> I was excited about. I, know. I felt very stupid, like, oh, of course. <laughs> I felt that way too about uh, like getting the water uh, drenched and then like not thinking like oh like yeah duh like I could wipe it off with the because it was even like referenced earlier like oh if you had a rag you could do it and then I was like mm. oh of course yeah. yeah you guys do a really good job of seeding uh, hints without real without us realizing it it just it set up the, the narrative flow of like yeah, like the the. I'm glad that comes across because that's definitely a thing. It is that something you are very good at. No, after really I played them now and I'm listening through as as other people play, I notice them and I go, "Ooh, that was." <laughs> yeah, it makes it really good for I mean, you to feel although, stupid afterwards, being like, "Oh, come on, this is clued did, very cleanly." It did take about <laughs> ten of those to get you to have a look at that book. That's true. <laughs> I think every well, I reference to I think I felt Dan as a character. I felt so rude taking it away from him. He seemed to be enjoying it so higher. much. To me, actually, I think it was exactly the right amount. I don't think it was too much. It was too obvious. It was just like that was his character trait. Mm. But it was just enough so that when you had nothing left, you thought, oh, maybe we should annoy him. And take him. <laughs> yeah, it's like that's, yeah. I, I just felt bad taking away, you know, he seemed to be enjoying it so much. Of course. <laughs> and on that note, thank, thank you to our listener and Patreon donor, Jan Mickelson. We hope you appreciate this character. You were. Yes. It seems like a good guy. Yeah, yeah. you were a good guy. Yeah, we really liked you. Yeah. He only You're stole great. a little bit of the treasure. If you, you like ever come, yeah, if you ever come to LA, we'll give you a real hug, Jan. <laughs> <sighs> All right. So now on that note, we've covered the puzzles. We've covered this room. How about the storyline so far? Now we're still early days, so it's not like with late Descent of the Culladins where we've got a huge ghost mystery full of lots of plot holes. So where do we think this is going? <laughs> I'm going to join in this conversation because I've got no idea as well. Right? I'm curious. Like, so... The so Jan took the uh that that uh horse eye stone. Mm. Did the was mm. there a person to be saved? because uh, I know that we're getting into spoiler territory for the episode we haven't heard yet, but was there mm. the person involved in the Pompeii episode? Was there something they also took? Oh, there was. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yes, so in mm. the first one, uh the girl there's the girl who was trapped in this house, oh, she wouldn't go uh yes, Julia, she wouldn't leave uh until she could get into a certain room. And when she did, she actually took a portrait of her father, and that's what was stopping her from leaving. Once she had that, she could, she could go. 
Um, I'm curious. Yeah, I'm curious. I, I have a feeling these so objects are somehow connected in some capacity. That's a good point. Maybe it's not about the people. It's about what the people have. Because already, though, like there's there's a weird impression of of um of of Greg not having done much. Like in the first game, the only thing that implies that he did anything to make the situation worse is that he possibly lost the key that you needed to unlock this door, and so that's what would have caused her to die. Um. And so, and in this one though, I can't find the hand of Greg anywhere. Like, why would if you weren't there, what bad thing would have happened to Yarn? And how, like, what? Why wouldn't that have happened at I any mean, point? I mean, he may have got, yeah, he may have gotten shot with an arrow. He may have gotten lost in a maze. But, but what Lots did of things Greg? Could have so happened. that's something that, like, but if you hadn't been there and Greg hadn't ruined stuff, what would have happened? Exactly. Like, what did Greg do to make this more difficult for Yarn? Yeah, we don't maybe know because there could have been a bridge or something across that river that he would have cut. But we, yeah, there's no impression that Greg did actually yeah, anything actively right? to stop it. Alternatively, to- maybe Greg tried to fill your role. He tried to think of himself as Indiana Jones and help. And instead and he, he was not very good at it. Maybe. But it's interesting. Maybe it is. Hey, you know what? I'm going to be the first person this arc to suggest it. <laughs> I think Bill's the bad guy. <laughs> Oh, where have I heard that before? I think he's getting you <laughs> to do some time heists. Did I say this in episode one as well? I, I think so. I'm, I'm doubling down. It's a time heist. But we didn't bring anything back with us. Yeah. But you allowed Yarn yeah, to get Jan it out of the tomb. It's a heist thousands of years in the making. And then he's going to go do a second time travel. He's lying to you. He's saying that you can't go twice, but you can. He keeps popping over and stealing things. He's like, as soon as you popped out of that timeline... In Yarn's timeline, Bill then appears two seconds later, punches him, takes the stone, and then disappears again. <laughs> that seems rude. He could just take it without punching him. That's just kind of cruel. <laughs> the punch was for fun. He's evil. <laughs> He's evil, yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm the first one who said it. Yeah, but, this but, is what but happens. It feels Back like to the more my favorite things. movie. But I haven't actually seen how the third one ends, so I'm just assuming <laughs> that, <he does> evil. <laughs> that Emmett Brown just punches Marty in the face and steals that, the car back. But it is how it works. Uh I'm curious though why these objects? Because if if I know it's alternate timelines and such, but would a painting of an old Roman and a, mm. a horse gem? It feels like other valuables in that thing. Like if he was going to be rich, why not take all the valuables from the tomb or all the paintings? Mm. Yeah, you're right. Right? There's no. I can't. There's no thematic connection or or motive connection. They're not super expensive things. <sighs> Was, oh, Danny, here's a question. Was Yulia's dad a terracotta horse? <laughs> <laughs> or was that her dad the, the one rock? question you didn't ask. I know, no one ever asked. They just assumed that you just said painting of her dad. And everyone's like, I guess he's a human Roman man, but is he actually a terracotta horse? That could is that the a connecting lot. arc? Yeah, I guess we better not go too deep into that. Do we need to that? change the name from chronomaly to terracotta hosonomy? <laughs> I just want this title to get longer every episode. Oh, I think no. that's it. Um, that means I've got to think of a new one every episode. So I wonder what's going to happen in like the next parts. Like, is it going to be still people and they and them like disappearing or living, or is other maybe I'll oh. keep an eye out for future. For a second, objects. I thought maybe you were going to say instead of people, something. like it's going to be animals or aliens. Yeah, that's where I well, thought I mean, you were going. Well, maybe you know, because it could just be like a thing has happened here. Like, it's not about a mm. single person not making their deadline or dying or doing. You know, it's. It's interesting. And yeah, and like, I wonder if we'll see, because we've, we've never met Greg. We're just taking Bill's word that he exists. Oh. Maybe, maybe Greg is Bill. And uh, Bill is Greg. 
Or have you seen a picture? Can you ask? Can we ask? Uh, yeah, next time I want people to ask. What, yeah. uh, is there a photo uh, of Greg? Right. Fine. I'll add that into episode three. <laughs> I haven't even typed it yet. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. It'll be it'll be interesting to see what happens with like the progression of this because so far there's no. It's it's hard to see the clear thing that, that Greg has done or, or, or what the or if there's any motives to it. Right? It doesn't even seem like he's done these things maliciously. Right? If it is just, just oh, dope. he dropped a key or. Maybe he was bad at being a great a tomb robber and he made something go bad or, you know, like maybe, maybe there's literally. Who said that this was a malicious arc? Yeah, maybe he's just a dummy who dropped a key in a, in a well by accident and, and then like accidentally kicked one of those uh, archers so that when Jan tried to move it, it shot him. Like, and by the end of the arc, he'll have gone to the future and caused the end of the world. So you'll have to stop that happening. Great. Big climax. No but one's being question. mean. How is Greg traveling back in time? So is he trapped and just jumping around different times? But I thought you could only go once. Mm. Yeah, right. You should only be able to go once. So how is Greg moving? Maybe he went back to the oldest timeline and everyone else is his descendants and he's handed them a mission. <laughs> you must. I, I, I am dying. Come to my bedside. You must deliver this message to your great, great, great grandson. Go to the tomb of Qin Shi Huang and, and annoy a man named Yan. I have seen it in the prophecy. <laughs> Maybe that's what happens. That's my yeah, guess. I am. I've changed my guess. Greg is a prophecy man from, okay. from the past who died millennia ago. Yeah, no, I'm getting trapped in time was something I was always so scared of as a kid, that I would somehow get trapped in time. <laughs> and, yeah. Have you listened to the podcast Finish It? No. It's, mm. a, it's a podcast where they take proper choose-your-own-adventure brand books and they play through them and every week the two people each get an ending and then they go through, and the following week, they get different endings until they've gotten every possible ending. And the first one that they do is the Cave of Time. And so it is just constant zipping around time traveling. And it is remarkable. It is well and truly getting trapped in time. Have you? I would be evil if they did the uh, one Spaceship Earth, I think it was called. Mm. It, it was, uh, there is a very fascinating uh, study of how the books are actually structured. And if the endings were randomly dispersed or were placed deliberately throughout the book, like as a structure, because people like huh. I, it was fascinating because someone tracked like I think fifty of the Choose Your Own Adventure books and did a visual like a visualizer of where the endings were, where good mm. ones were, where bad ones were, uh, and just analyzing the structure of them. But Spaceship Earth, spoiler alert: uh, the premise is that you're looking for this planet that is like utopia, and you can never find it because. The way you find it is it's an ending that does not have a way to lead to it. Aww. Oh, no. The Why? only way to get to it is by flipping through the book and finding it, which is sort of this meta commentary on how the books are structured. Ah. How cool. That's horrible. I yeah, hate but it. I think, so, yeah, <laughs> if you're playing it for real, because what I would do when I was a kid is I had the goosebumps ones and I would yeah. put a uh, note card at every of fork course. and I'd come back. And so that way I could guarantee I saw everything. And I'd also yeah, notate exactly. on the page every time I came to it. I mean, we still we play a couple of those on our Patreon, so we're still very much into that. I love the first Goosebumps one, but there's only one way out. The first, oh, the first Choose Your Adventure. Yeah, adventure. the carnival one. No, it's like the museum one. Into the Jaws of Doom. Oh, yeah. Got it's that on the cupboard so right next good. to me, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That was my favorite thing to do. Uh, so I think in terms of, of what we're doing, this, this game, this arc, 
that's pretty much covered. I want to talk about... No, I, want, I have one more oh, question. Okay, what's your one more question? What time do you think they're going to go to in the next episode? Ooh, Ooh. what's the next time? What was the actual year of, of this? Because uh, I would love to do the original. Because Pompeii no, is it was clear. very broad, but I would say not long after Pompeii. Okay, Maybe but definitely after? After Pompeii, yes. Like 150 AD. Yeah, somewhere between one and 500 years after. Okay. Mm. So maybe we're looking at something around like 1000 AD or a couple late late 9 900s AD. When was Stonehenge what? built? Was that older? That's older, I think. Yeah. It was really old. But what was going on around a fa- the Crusades? 1000 oh, AD in the middle of the Crusades. <laughs> that might be dark. You're in, you Oof. appear in Jerusalem under siege. <laughs> Saracens everywhere. <laughs> I mean, that would be really dark. Yeah, um, yeah, that's so good. You're, you're part of the Children's Crusade, the one where they all just died immediately. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, let's go with that. I'm also yeah, thinking, well, what, what relic, like the idea of a famous archaeological site or famous relic that would have some sort of implication, I think, the tied to it. Shroud of Turin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's get the religion year that it was created. Which year that it was created? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have no idea what we next. I'm excited to find out. Same. Yeah, that should be really fun. You know the biggest problem with mm. going through various time periods? Uh, it's that in almost every time period up until about the late 1800s, the default language for anything written in the West was Latin. There you go. Yeah, so it's kind of boring. So trying to not just have every room be, yeah, this one's got Latin. It's really difficult. I'm looking forward to when we finally get to a year where someone can speak English. <laughs> I mean, don't underestimate the be, power of, like, uh, of we'll hugs and uh, gestures. Be like Chaucer English. Yeah. You have to write out full scripts for all your NPCs. Oh yeah, your Middle English. Chaucerian Middle mm-hmm. English. Great. Hey, it's me, Jimmy Ragoletto, famous mafia boss and star of Escape This Podcast Season 1. So I had trouble with a lot of people escaping from my speakeasy where I'd tie them up. And I figure, hey, it's been like 80 years since Prohibition was even a thing. Why don't I actually turn it into a real escape room? So I got this whole cool business plan, you know? I want to get like a list of all my customers' names and good photos of them. So I figure what I'd do is after they leave, I'd get them framed for robbery or murder. And then I'd take the police mugshot and put, stick it up on my wall. Wait, what? What do you mean? What the heck's Budshot? Wait, you're saying I can use a software to do that for me? People can put in their own names, team names, and I can keep track of them that way with really nice photos? Okay, yeah, okay, you smart chicken, but what about this? I also figured a really cool way to get reviews. See, people don't like leaving reviews, so what I figured I'd do is I'd follow them home, and I'd beat them up and extort them into leaving a good review on my website. Oh, it does that too. So like an easy link they can just click when they get their photo, and they'll leave a review. Okay, you're a smart bird. I know why I keep you around. Okay, yeah, but I'm not going to get it though, right? Because that sounds expensive. So, I... Wait, how much? 80% off. You're telling me I can get 80% off my first month with Buzzshot by going to buzzshot.co slash escape this podcast? All right, give it a try. But if it doesn't work, you're going to be sleeping with the fishes. Well, that was dumb. Hi, uh, it's Bill just jumping in. Um... I thought I'd just mention that if you want more Escape This Podcast, you can get more Escape This Podcast. We have just done another episode of our show on somebody else's podcast. 
We were guests on the latest episode, that's episode 36, of the Jock Doc podcast. Uh, you can find that at jockdocpodcast.com. Uh, it was lots of fun. We actually ran them through our human body room, which you may remember from the first season. Uh, it kind of fit the theme, right? Medical podcast, medical room. So if you want to hear more, if you, want to, if you remember that room and you want to see how new people deal with it, or if you don't and you want to go and see it for the first time on their show, uh, you can head over to that. There is a link in the show notes below. Uh, and go say hi. Tell them you came from us. All right. Lovely. I'll let you get back to podcast. This is game. See ya. Uh, okay. So I think, I think in terms of like the show and, and that episode and the arc, I, I think that's pretty much everything covered. I think anything more we'll get to inadvertent huge spoiler territory <laughs> if we guess anything. Uh, I want to talk, but we do have two incredibly talented escape room designers here with us. So I want to talk a little bit about puzzle design. Wait, who, who, oh, with us. Oh, wow. Oh, no, no. Uh, it's, 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 it's Danny and Patrick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well done. Well done. Uh, no, no. Uh, so one of the things actually I want to talk about, cause you mentioned it in, uh, uh, the previous episode, uh, Patrick was that the thing that got you into escape room design was wanting to score escape rooms to, to do musical scores for escape rooms. Is, is that something that you feel is an, is an integral part of the rooms that you, uh, run now? Um, yeah, no, I, I think that the, um, that music is actually, it just adds to the element of immersion because I feel like people say immersion like so much as like, what is what you're striving for when creating an escape room. But what we really tried to do was to make it as immersive as possible. And then using like film score, like kind of style background music to kind of set the mood for what's going on. And like it changed, it progressed as the room to give you a sense of progression. It just adds to it and using it in the same style that you use um, music and film scores like the the trope of film score music is more like if someone is paying attention to the music, then you've written the music poorly because it should just be <laughs> underscoring what is going on in the room. So we tried to do that in the room as well to just kind of accentuate the stuff that's happening, but not like take you out of the immersion that is happening. So I think if I, I really, really think that adding music to the escape rooms like makes them I, it makes them more enjoyable because I've done escape rooms since that have been like in complete quiet and it is just a very oh, it's strange, so it's like a jarring mm, experience. Unusual. Yeah. Just, just recently I've done some that are like have no soundtrack, like nothing. And it's just a very strange experience. So <laughs> now when you uh, do the music for the escape rooms, is that very late in the design process or is that one of the earlier things that you do? I kind of do it like as I'm going through to like, kind okay. of like set, set moods. So yeah. Because it's helpful yeah, it's like really when designing stuff too. Like when, when you're trying to design like the puzzles and how things feel, like the progression and how things move along, like to have the music transform as you like are picking up steam and like how long things need to be, mm. like when you loop things, so forth. So. It is amazing to see how uh, with Stash House, we have this element of diegetic design, which is mm. it's it, the attempt is to make it where things are there for a real life reason and were deliberately put there, which puts music in a weird space for us because we're like, well, what? why is there music playing? And it's just because Ray is playing it for you. But the idea is that it changes from one type of music to another when there's obviously a key moment that happens that sort of changes the mm-hmm. space a little bit. And we deliberately changed it from a certain type of soundtrack to a different type. And what's funny is that most people don't notice it deliberately unless their attention's called to it. 
But I was going to say them. You must be doing something right because I had to hesitate and go. Wait, did Stash House have music? <laughs> so it's it's a really subtle thing, but it's funny because people naturally it's it's a obviously you know the moment, but uh, and if you played it, it's a very it's a shift. <laughs> but we that's when the tonality of the story changes too. And it's a mm. moment of discovery, but uh, it's meant to make people sort of apprehensive. But what we found is when we did early testing, the idea of how the score was going to change uh, and why. And of course, narratively, it's because Ray is testing you and messing with you. But also it's because we want this moment to feel different and every spatial change or reveal to feel different. And this just helps underscore it. And we noticed people became more apprehensive, which is deliberate. And we don't, it's not scary, but it's meant to make people for a second go like, oh crap, what did we, what is this? <laughs> and that, that change, that very uh, deliberate change is, is meant to be this big moment. And same thing at the end with this idea of celebration and, and victory, again, should sound different. And again, people yeah. don't often remember it actively, but it definitely does change their perception of the moments. You do, I See, yeah, I don't remember things like exactly what the sound was doing at that time, but I definitely remember the triumph feeling. <laughs> that's true. And that's uh, the hope. Is is like, again, like Patrick said, like the idea is that it should work as a whole piece. Uh, just like mm. any, if, if, I mean, looking at any, any piece made up of multiple elements, like a film, you don't want something individually to call attention to itself because it's mm. supposed to make a bigger whole. But then afterwards, you can go through and appreciate and pick the parts, you know, and, and, and tease them apart. I get the feeling that obviously there, there's no limit to where I can do this, but it feels like living in the LA and California greater sort of area. You are surrounded by so many of these industries where that is true and where that is the expectation and things like that. Like there are people who are in all of the industries like that having to come together to create the single projects. So does it feel like escape rooms in that sort of area are more likely to be able to take lots of the different elements to put them together, whereas places? I don't know, in the middle of nowhere in Australia, might just focus on, I don't know, coming up with some puzzles and putting some posters on walls. That's mean to Australia, but... No, I mean, I, th I think it also helps that we live in an area that has a lot of really great designers and really great rooms. I think you tend to emulate your environment. And I think when your standards are as high as they are out here, I think from a purely business standpoint, yeah, to be competitive, you need to at least bring some level of production or some level mm. of like storytelling or immersion or whatever it is. Yeah. But I think also the idea is, yeah, people out here, I think just also have a higher standard when it comes to design because you're exposed to, you know, Disney and Universal and you have theme parks, <laughs> but then you also have the access to fabricators and, and designers and people that are able to make this. Yeah, because I know that when it comes to designing a quality real escape room, I wouldn't be able to do it because there are just too many elements that wouldn't even occur to me. <laughs> and that's the thing that's scary is like when you are making a film or a story where you have complete control of what the audience is doing, <laughs> it makes it a lot easier to direct where their attention is. But in mm. a, you know, in a room, there's, you can't oh, really yeah. do bad angles because people can go and wander and poke and look at everything. So if, if things are not at the top level, you know, it, it, in a theme park, a good example is like rides where there are certain angles that don't have to actually look good if the audience can't physically look at it. You can control sure. even mm -hmm. in like a dark ride, uh, you know, like a small world, you can kind of look everywhere. <laughs> but in a ride like the Haunted Mansion, where you are physically in a ride where your view is obstructed, you can only look in certain spots. Like it doesn't matter what's behind you if you can't see it. With a room, yeah. you can't control attention that way. You have to basically, if you're going to try to go for mm. a raised aesthetic, you have to push. And same thing with the audio. Like, it, it's super awkward being in a room with that's silent. 
<laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it is true, right? That restrictive thing, because like I remember, a good, exa- a great example of that is something like the the Harry Potter ride at Universal, where they have that the seats that you're in are so restrictive to your field of view. Yeah. They have they stick out so far above your head and around the sides to cut off a lot of your peripheries. And if you ever sit and deliberately in a weird way and look, you you immediately like as soon as it's past that that outside of what they have constructed as your field of vision. Things left out with really bare and machinery, just cogs and wheels. But it's so, but you, you have to make such a concerted right way, effort to do that. And yeah. you generally won't. Yeah, if you're not actively doing it, it's these, they feel like these fully realized worlds. It's um, one thing that drives me nuts in there's a Soren Califor, California, whatever, the Soren ride in California Adventure out here. And it's the idea you have that curved screen and you're essentially like gliding over these uh, environments. But there are a lot of seats that I hate because when you sit in the wrong spot, you see the uh, uh, curvature of the screen. Uh, and so it's mm. like, to me, it's like, I wish they either had blinders or something. Cause when you see the curvature of the screen it just completely pulls you out of it. So the idea oh, of again, like being like, in a theater and seeing into the wings. Right. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. Where you, you just see the actor like waiting for their cue, just hanging out. Yeah. Yeah. I think just yeah. views again, it's like the element of control about visuals, which is, you know, I wish theaters were better designed and I, I get that you have to have seats in the rights, you know, enough seats to be able to make the theater sizable mm-hmm. and justify the amount of people that sit there. But yeah, it's like that being able to control views uh, is both a good and bad thing because when mm. you have control, you have to be able to make every angle count and work. And you also have to figure out ways to draw people's attention to things. Because in a room, if you have, there's this argument of like diegesis versus mimesis in games, which is a good example. If you're making a library, a real library has tons of books that you can pull out, but, <laughs> and obviously they're not, you know, locked, you know, they're not glued, they're not stuck in the wall, mm-hmm. but to create a realistic room that feels like it has library books, are you going to drive your player insane and drive your game master insane by making all of them real and you can pull them out and flip through them? I mean, that's distracting. You, you know, you know how- what they should really do What's in that, that case? Um, please cut this because this is too <laughs> much of a spoiler. No. Uh, they should make things a library from the about 14 to 1800s where the <laughs> books were locked in place because borrowing library down. books was not a thing yet. Really? Perfect. Mm-hmm. I uh, had no idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's the thing. I've is, learned is, so much from this arc. I, I had, not that's fascinating. So, uh, but, it's, <laughs> but it's true, right? It's the same as like video game uh, uh, interactable objects, right? Where they'll give you yeah. this huge, beautiful scene that's, that's uh, created to look realistic, but you can't do anything with it until it gives you the option to hit X to pull this thing. And it's arbitrarily, that's the chair that you can interact with. And the rest are just, there's no button to interact with them. Is the video game version of glue down all the books, there's no button in, to interact with that in real life, escape room people. It's funny because uh, I remember old Hanna-Barbera cartoons when they had like the painted backgrounds and then the one object they could interact with was like brighter because that was actually <laughs> yes, on the yeah. cell. But it's like that, yeah, where it pulls you out of it where you, it has this weird sort of sense of, you know, you're in a game, but it's kind when owners find a way to draw your attention. So you're not just like, oh God, there are games that you knew could play with that have like 50 or 60 books in them. And you're like, I don't know if I'm supposed to actually flip through and find and play a game yeah. of search and find, or if... I'm supposed to wait and it will tell me which book to flip through. But that's the kind of design where it's like a guiding hand in design, which obviously sound and lighting can do, uh, are helpful and, and useful. But again, they can also pull you out. So it's finding that balancing between the two. Mm. 
And it can, when you get into some extreme examples, it can really affect the level of trust that you have in a game. And trust in an escape room is a massive deal. Like, mm. if you see something and there is any sort of uncertainty about whether it's a part of the game or not, oh, that's yeah. a very uncomfortable feeling. Oh, 100%. There are times also, like, I, and it's hard because you can't approach a game by itself. You have to approach, you can't turn your brain off. You have to be able to sort of approach with preconceptions. And so the idea of like a black light, an unattached black light is a, oh, a horrible thing <laughs> because suddenly you now have the obligation of like, because other bad games have ruined it. Do I have to exactly. search every object, every angle of the room for some arbitrary symbol hidden in some corner? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Cause you never know whether that's what they're going to expect. Cause it, it is, you don't, if you don't know whether to trust them. Right? And so, and part of that is so, the, the, such a great thing. Like when we did our, uh, uh, trip across the the US and Canada. We, we pretty much only on did rooms great that were recommended to us. So we worked with the basis of like, let's trust them and not assume that we're going to have to do something stupid, which made the whole experience more enjoyable. But as soon as you go to this new room and you're not quite sure, there's always that little thing of, okay, maybe I do have to just randomly flick through books and that'll be a code. Um, especially for us, because I know uh, when I play games, I very much don't like like i'm not i would never uh put on on for, for me when i play like if i have three out of four digits to a lock i never try i just never just guess the last digit i'm always like no no i'm gonna enjoy i'm gonna find where they've given me the last digit so when a room isn't trustworthy and they expect stuff like that or or they expect you to and just ideally, like ideally they shouldn't hey, put you in that position random, in the first place you know, there was right. a random four digit code you should have tried it on all the locks you know, something uh, I could have, yeah. but I'm going to wait for you to tell me. But if you never tell me, like, don't expect me to do that sort of stuff. And it can sometimes be really a drawback from a room. That actually works a lot. Like, that feels like it's coming back to the importance of playtesting because that is coming down to what is intuitive mm. and that sort of thing. Like, I feel like making those sorts of jumps. I still remember when we found we were in a room and we found a bullet that had a four-digit code on it and there was a four-digit lock on the ammunition drawer, and that wasn't correct. Yeah. It went to some other random drawer. That was sad. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that bloody bullet. That's, oof, I, yeah. It, <laughs> it, it, it shocks me how few places value and understand how to even playtest. Mm. With Stash House, we playtested for almost, like, for several months. Mm. They're just, you have no idea who is going to be coming and playing. I mean... I'm lucky I get to take the lazy route. I know that we're going to get an escape room fan mm. generally every time who knows what they're doing. And you also know that you have the power to change the room on the fly That's during true. any individual session. We just recorded a podcast for uh, as a guest on somebody else's show and they finished the final puzzle in a way that was completely unintended but made logical sense. So we just said, that works. Great. Congratulations, you did it. You solved the puzzle mm. because you have that capacity, right? So playtesting is is easier for us because we are so hands-on constantly and you can define reality by your words. But yeah, for a real room, not only do you not have any of that control, isn't it something, it's a ridiculously high percentage of people that are first-time players, isn't it? It is. And it's amazing to me still, like even after we've been open, we still get a lot of people who are first-timers or have done one or two, but don't really have a framework for it. Mm. And what they're going to do is going to be obviously very different from one another. Like, I, I assume you'll see some patterns in what people do, but I assume that at no point in owning an escape room 
will you stop being surprised by what someone tries? I mean, we've been lucky that no one's done anything destructive in ours, but like, That's what's some nice. weird stuff people have done in yours? Well, I mean, we, <laughs> I mean, it just depends on the people. I've had people do tons of weird things. I had a couple that like made out like every time they solved the puzzle. I never saw that before. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't really destructive, but it was just weird to watch. But um, I mean, I mean yeah, Patrick, the, I'm sitting right here. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you guys <laughs> did need to keep it a little bit contained. But no, I mean, it's it's true because even like after running like hundreds of games, I, we still had people doing like strange thing. We had someone find we bought a desk, like a used desk and someone like <laughs> 110 like something games into it like pulled out all of these drawers and then found like this book lodged into the back of this desk oh. and they were like this has to be a clue like in the debt like it's like a detective kind of theme and the book was called like bang bang you're dead like oh, it was seriously on. like lined up oh. way too perfectly and it had just been sitting there for 110 games it's just but people like they became a little <laughs> bit more like I guess destructive, like in trying to pull the drawers out, and then they found it later. But you, you just never know what people are going to do. People found <laughs> people found in our couches in Stash House. They found um, like we got used couches, uh, and oh, no. we we cleaned them out pretty well, but apparently not well enough because uh, <laughs> another owner who should have known better, like just was his like like elbow deep in this couch, and he pulled out a ring. And there is oh, like, no. yeah, it was like an old plastic, like toy ring. <laughs> and he was convinced. And if the thing is for us, like when we're watching and someone does something unexpected and the, the biggest thing we've noticed is just from testing. And I think this is just human nature. If you're going down a road and you get really frustrated with something, and it's not turning out the way you expect or want, you get disappointed. And so we will immediately nip bad ideas that will take you down a bad road and <laughs> that will uh, somehow destroy things we'll stop that pretty quickly. And so we let them know, you know, hey, that ring is just, you know, left behind from previous group, like in character in the world. But by saying that, mm-hmm. that's not part of it. But they didn't believe it. They thought it was something. And so they had <laughs> that ring the entire game. And at that the end, definitely- and at the end, the guy's like, so what was the ring? And it's like, that was <laughs> trash from the couch. And he's like, oh, damn. I'm like, we told you that. <laughs> but he really, well, we that's- let him keep it. That feels like that's a different element of the trust thing. So sometimes it's a trust is earned from the escape room. But from the other kind, there are just some people that will not trust what you say, regardless of what you have done, what you have said. So things like the do not touch signs that some places have. People just won't trust those. That but must be part of it. there are also games that deliberately mess. And that that is something that and pisses me off really strongly mm, is when oh. people list out rules and then tell you to break them. There's one game in yeah. particular that has rules in it. And then at some point tells you to break a rule and you're just, oh, it, it frustrates me to no end because the problem is there, it's like safe words in, um, in extreme haunts yeah. or in any kind of haunt where that should be outside of the game. And when you Absolutely. mess with it, you, you question people, you know, question people question the whole reality of the game. And as soon as you mm. say, well, this rule is no longer on the table, there's like a what if. And while you're mm-hmm. like, well, come on, you shouldn't really be doing that. But at the same time, I get their logic of, well, if this isn't real, why can I try, you know, to actually destroy things or do this? And Absolutely. Yeah. And the same thing happened. Yeah, exactly. Like I played a game where you actually, they let you use tools like partway through the game. And you're like, oh, we have to use these tools now that because they've opened this line of like logic that you go right. down. And then you try to use tools on something else. And then like the game master's coming over please don't use the tools on anything. And you're like, Mm -hmm. Uh, one of my favorites was there was a game that had a bolt cutter in it. 
And what's fascinating mm. is you had to cut something, but the bolt cutter was chained to the wall. But the fascinating thing is the bolt cutter was so long and the chain was long <laughs> that you could actually cut the chain and free the bolt cutter. <laughs> And so oh, I, I knew oh, what they no. were intending, but I was starting, like, I was about to act like I was going to cut the <laughs> chain. And they're like, please don't do that. Please don't. Please don't like, cut the just chain. make it shorter so it can't reach itself. But that's the thing. Yeah. There's one game that has a saw where you have to saw through something. And oh, there's wow. the, but there's a thing you, I, but that's at the very beginning. And I kept wanting to use the saw and just saw out of the room. Um, mm. There's, there's a we're thing. We're talking about the same game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there's a, a thing that I get though, and it's finding this balancing act, but it's basically a transgressive act or the idea of being naughty and it's stuff you can't do every day. It's something that you would either mm. get arrested for, or like, you know, at least be labeled a troll or a jerk in real life. And immersive interactive experiences sometimes give you the chance to do things you wouldn't normally do and get the same titillation, but in a safe environment. And mm. I can. It's like it's yeah. like Tommy doesn't usually walk around shooting everybody with a bow in his real life. Exactly. I know it really is. It's, it's <laughs> and I normally keep my clothes on. Yeah. And and you don't <laughs> well, normally get to flush drugs. But the idea is mm. is leaning into mm. certain transgressive acts that are okay and permissible. But the challenge is you need to do them in a way that doesn't encourage destruction or break immersion, and that fits in with the narrative. And there are a lot of rules you have to follow very carefully to pull that off successfully. And that's a really oh, yeah. big challenge. To do it in a way that doesn't pull you from reality, doesn't really encourage physical destruction of your game or hurting other people. When you can pull it off well, it's really exciting. Mm. But it just- And it's interesting. It's almost like you want to break, like if you're in an escape room scenario like that, you want to break the rules of the real world, like real rules, but you don't want to break the rules, like you shouldn't touch the rules of escape room. Right. Right. Like, so for example, like if, if there's some moment where you get to do something with like like illicit like illicit drugs right as you mentioned right like you don't get to flush drugs flushing drugs is great fun but there's no escape room anywhere that's saying like please do not flush things down the toilet because that's not right. a, that's not something you need to deal with but there's a reason in california and across a lot of the country now you have to say don't put your finger in an electric socket yeah yes oh. well exactly right because that's something that yeah that's a that's transgressing rules that should apply across yeah. the board to an industry. You want to try and get those rules out of the way and try and, and try and take stuff that isn't going to affect your industry. You know, break rules like you have get a, someone you to whistle have, backstage. That's fine. That's exactly. against the you rules. You should have enough rule breaking that isn't, I don't know, that is outside of those rules that, yeah. It's almost, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, almost a, it's a more moral act to have somebody like commit a fake murder in an escape room than it is to have them take apart a fake electric socket. hundred yeah. percent. And that's the thing. And, and yeah, you know, agreed. And that's the challenge is, can you capture certain emotions and certain things and experiences without causing, you know, an overall breakage to the game itself or to the industry at large, which, you know, to me, mm. there are games that set bad habits and encourage bad habits and, and sort of it, it triggers and, and echoes across, especially when there's sort of that, that knowledge, you know, uh, the, the effect where people, read an article or play one game and suddenly they're experts and that frames their whole knowledge. And when that is their first game or first experience and they go into a second one or a third one, you know, it, it takes a while to know how much you don't know or how wide, you know, a field of study or a, a framework for what something is. But you don't yeah. know that until you do enough of them. So there's that sort of level of, I don't blame people for feeling like they need to break things because they have been trained by early experiences that are not setting up the framework for how to actually do real things. 
Mm. All right. Well, there was one other question I would ask while we were talking about playtesting a little bit before, just because I think it's a, maybe a little bit more fun than, than rule breaking. <laughs> uh, is do you, do I, now you, like, you both have successful rooms that have gone, undergone, underwent a lot of playtesting. Is there anything that you have that you still think, oh, it would have been good. I had to take it out because people didn't get it, but oh, it was such a good puzzle. It was such a good element. Is there anything you had to take out? Is that, how many of your darlings have you killed? All of them. <laughs> I, I, I normally like I end up designing puzzles that are like entirely too hard. And then I mm. have to like make I like have to sanitize all of them because I like go through and people are playing and they're like, well, typically like our rooms are an hour. But when we first play test them, they they have taken as long as three hours just because the puzzles are there's either too many or they're too difficult. And like it's just things I'm like, oh, yeah, this this makes sense. And then you just realize that people's brains operate differently and you have to kind of mm-hmm. figure out what the, you know, the median range is that it's still challenging to the majority of people, but also isn't like impossible for some people. That's the, the hardest part. With yeah. Stash House, the first, like, God, we tested it in chunks. And so literally the first third of the game took almost two hours. Mm-hmm. Wow. And we're like, oof. And that was not even touching, like, even the part of the first area. That was just touching like three puzzles. Uh, no, I mean, you're right. It, 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 you often lean towards making things way too hard uh, without intentionally doing it. For, for me, it's not that I've killed darlings. It's like I've, I've had to learn to accept getting rid of a certain puzzle. But if whatever I'm trying to capture, like if it's a feeling or a certain idea, it's okay. How can I make this easier to achieve? Or is this successful at delivering what I want it to deliver? So I try not to get married to anything, but try to capture the same essence in different ways. Um, which it can be frustrating at times when you're like, come on, why can't you feel what I want you to feel? <laughs> but it's not anyone's fault. It, it, you know, it's just me realizing. And I think I've had to be a lot more willing to just let stuff go uh, and throw mm-hmm. a lot of things against the wall. That's why I, for me, I've learned I get better at testing. And I know everyone has different ways of showing things. But for me, I like testing as early as possible. And it's really just testing with cardboard and like ideas and getting, ex- like accepting earlier on. Because I think the more you get married to stuff, the deeper it goes and you testing it and building it, it's harder to kill. So for me, I'd rather mm-hmm. kill it when it's young and fresh and, and being able to shape it in different directions rather than getting married to something. So for us, like with a lot of the technological stuff we've built, anything I build going forward, I don't get even close to building it or hiring a programmer to do it until I know the logic of it works. Mm. Nice. This is, I think this is a little bit of why outside of playtesting, I like having these post-episode discussions where I ask, where do you think this story is going? Because I do have the entire plot plotted out, but if it feels like people aren't getting that as it goes and as the games are being played, then things can change. So Bill no. will be evil. If The fact that you even lean into that, though, the fact that because there are a lot of people that I've, I've seen who are fairly good designers, but have these blind spots where you have a perfectly logical solve to a puzzle and they're like, nope, nope, that's not it. And the fact that you're even willing to play and you have the luxury of being able to play, but the fact that you see it as a possibility, yeah, that's logical, we'll go with it. Because I've seen, it's like, no, you have to figure out the way I intended you to. And that mm. to me is like, then why are you building this game? Is it, Are you building a game for your own jollies and like having people walk down a very particular path? Or are you enjoying, you know, watching people have fun and feel smart and connected? Well, I think also exactly. too, regardless of play testing, like, like I know that you have talked about how you could change things on the fly, but like even like, probably about nine months after the room opens, 
constantly changing things because a lot of the times you have a different type of person that comes out to the room first. It's a lot of like the enthusiasts, especially in the Los Angeles market. And then you have to be able to tone the puzzles to, to fit the crowd. And like, the thing is, is if you have a puzzle, any puzzle that is requiring hints, a large portion of the time, that doesn't mean that the puzzle's too hard. It just means it's not, it's not working because if you have to give hints constantly, you just have to redesign the puzzle. So we're always changing puzzles. And I know the Sash House does the same exact thing, like always like updating, keeping things fresh and new and making things better, which I think mm. is a hallmark of good design too, is to like never really accept that just because you did something before that it's the right thing. Yeah, people have solved it correctly for the first six months. So therefore any group that doesn't solve it is stupid. It's like, no, it yeah. just, there are different ways of thinking. I see it as like a sharp edge that you're sanding down to be smooth. What's really funny That's is there are games that constantly I will play and, you know, I have no, there are people I know who don't want hints, but I am perfectly fine. If we're not making forward progress and we're getting frustrated, that's not fun. And so I'm perfectly acceptable, like asking for a hint. And there are some games where people are like, yeah, people always ask for a hint on this thing. Mm-hmm. And I want to shake that person and like, then change it, then update it, then fix it. Like then clue Make it better. It, yeah, do something. The, the way I always yeah. see it is essentially you want someone to walk away with a loaf of bread. If you hand them the loaf of bread first, they're not going to feel smart. There, it's not a puzzle. If exactly. you break break yes. it up into crumbs, you need to put them far enough apart where people are able to see the next, you know, uh, crumb or next slice and feel like they were the one that saw it and discovered it and followed the path. At the end, they have bread, but they're the ones that put it together. Now, yes, you placed it deliberately so they would feel smart and notice it, but that's the whole illusion is that they feel smart by the way you designed it. If you put mm-hmm. them too close together, it's not fun. It's too easy. Too far apart, they're going to get lost or won't see the next one. So it's really about, you know, adjusting the distance between the crumbs or the slices that really, like, designing that perfect puzzle is. And you're never going to necessarily get that perfect distance that everyone's going to see. People solve differently. But it's knowing as an owner when something is good enough as a tinkerer, and you're always going to have to, like, people might get hints at times because— I have brain farts where I'm like, oh, come on. Like, we should have picked mm. up the bow. <laughs> yeah. But that was a perfectly valid <laughs> puzzle. So it's acknowledging mm. that, yeah, you're not going to get something perfect, but it's getting it good enough. Yeah. That's just, it's being able to make people feel good. Yeah. Mm. Just be happy. <laughs> be happy. We're in the business of making people happy. That's the goal. <sighs> All right, lovely. Well, we probably shouldn't keep you a huge amount longer. Yeah, it must be getting late for you guys. It must be, yeah. It's afternoon right now for you guys, right? Uh, uh, yeah. It's 5 p.m. Get and hopefully late. the rain the rain and construction stopped. I was going to say and... the scary thunder didn't happen again, yeah. it sounded like. So. Yeah. Well, I'm just very glad that I did not take the initiative in actually putting our washing out yes. when <laughs> I had the chance. <laughs> uh, all right, lovely. So we won't keep you any longer. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and playing through. You guys did spectacularly, and it's been it lovely so to talk great about having you. you. Talk to you about no, this was yeah. a blast. Uh, as well. I'm glad we didn't embarrass ourselves too much. Only slightly. Oh, awesome. I can't wait uh, for people no, to make fun of me and my ability to describe uh, rulers. <laughs> Look, it was fine. It was just a very, it just hit us. It just tickled me in just the right way. It's going to be interesting for listeners because obviously most of the listeners, they won't have seen the images. Yeah. So they won't have a clue whether you're telling it exactly the way it is. I want people to. I want. I want to see the drawings. You did play that uh, game. Yeah, I uh, want to see drawings. Please did... show us what you ended up drawing. Mm, yeah. Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, but yeah, yes, yeah. If you played that game, tw- tweet it at us or send it to us on Instagram or, or do it like, or just email it to us if you don't want to be too public. We would love to see if you played along whether you got that simple correct. And because, feel free to mock me endlessly. Yeah, any complaints are to be sent straight through to to 
whoever was describing that image for you. Uh, but yeah, I, I would love to see him. Um, one of the, so before you guys go, um, where if people want to find more of you, if they want to play your rooms, if they want to find you on Twitter or wherever, uh, where can people find you? Um, I don't really do social media, but if you want to go play the Evil Genius Rooms, they're up in the Silicon Valley. So there are the company called Off the Couch. That's where they are currently at, and they will be open within the month. So wonderful. Uh, and I think social media is toxic and uh, cancer on the uh, earth. Uh, <laughs> thanks to Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, but I have Stash House. People can check it out in Los Angeles. Uh, and I don't really tweet at my <laughs> Twitter address is Angela Lansburyed. Uh, <laughs> See me occasionally repost uh, sarcastic things that I find amusing. But again, uh, social media is toxic. Okay, so people can have successful businesses without succumbing to social media. That's fascinating. 100%. It's, not a podcast, it's, it's, yes. it's, it's playing it on hard mode, but for sure. <laughs> uh, wonderful. And for people who want to find us, uh, you can find us on social media because you're so far away. We need to talk to you some. We, ha- we have succumbed. Uh, so you can find us on Twitter at, ask, at ask this podcast. We're on Instagram as Escape This Podcast, Facebook. Uh, as Escape This Podcast. Uh, we also have a second show, which you can go check out, which is called Solve This Murder, in which Danny creates murder mysteries, which I uh, try and solve as a detective. It is wildly more difficult than Escape This Podcast, <laughs> uh, but leads to some very cool murder mystery scenarios coming out. So feel free to check that out as well. Uh, links to that are in the uh, show notes below as well. Uh, and also, if you if you like what we do, and you want to help us grow and maintain growth, uh, we are trying this year to get as much growth as we can and to try and turn this into something we can do full time. Uh, And the best way you can help us with that is to sign up to our Patreon. There's lots of rewards there. There's uh, bonus episodes for $5 donors. You get all these playtests and other murder mysteries. and and Choose your own adventure stuff. Playing through, yeah, choose your own adventure games and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, And for $10 donors, there are badges that we send out for, for each season of Escape This Podcast. Uh, and also, anybody who is a donor uh, has the chance to appear as an NPC in one of our escape rooms. Like uh, this fortnight's wonderful Jan Mickelson. Thank you again. Yes, and of course, the uh, oh, and hero Greg? of the arc. Well, well or villain of the mark. arc. <laughs> the person of the arc, Greg. Uh, uh, Greg Harislak. <laughs> uh, so we would love to see you there. There's other rewards as well. Uh, and it would be wonderful to see you there. If you don't want to sign up as... as if you can't sign up for the Patreon or just don't really want to spend money on a free product, uh, the other best thing you can do is just tell people about the show. Tell everybody. If you're on public transport right now, turn to the person next to you, tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, escape this podcast, and they'll already be a listener. <laughs> we gotcha. Uh, but no, spread the word. It very much helps. Uh, and you can leave reviews anywhere that you can leave reviews, uh, which is always helpful as well, so people know how bad we are. <laughs> Wonderful. This Thank you so weird. much. This is <laughs> a blast. So Thank you for, for having on. us. It was was great fun to to talk with you both. Uh, And we will see everybody else next time.